up this particular series that we've been doing now for about four weeks. In fact, this is part four of what does business have to do with the church. As I jump into this for today, and I say that I'm wrapping this series up as far as a congregational teaching, my hope is that you do not wrap this series up today in your mind and heart and spirit. My hope is that you will receive the seeds that have been sown over the last three weeks and then today, and that you will receive those, the words that you've heard as seed, and you will allow those seeds to produce in you a vision for what you are capable of, where you can be, what you can do. As I've said from the very beginning of this particular series, and, and I remind us again today, if depending on the hearer, depending on the person who is receiving this message, you can interpret it in many different ways if you choose to. Someone might say, well, this is just another preacher preaching a prosperity message, and I am. I am teaching a prosperity message, but not the kind of prosperity message that most people are used to. I'm not teaching a prosperity message that says everybody's going to be rich with money. What I'm doing is teaching a message that teaches to the seer and to the hearer, to the one who will receive, teaching a truth that I believe that the believers of Jesus Christ, that those who have received Jesus Christ and walk in the kingdom of God, do not have, a li- do not have to live a life of lack. Amen. Come on. That's the prosperity I'm teaching. Right. It's not a life about having millions of dollars in your bank account. It's a life about saying, I am no longer the owned one, but instead I am the owner. It's no longer, it's not about being the slave of something, but it's about being the master of everything. That is the kingdom of God. That is true prosperity in its purest form and in the form that I'll be describing to you today with the different scriptures that I'll be using today to help illustrate as well as I possibly can what Holy Spirit has put in my heart. Now, I'm a a man. I'm a human being. So in me, there are going to be things that often happen. I'm going to say things that maybe it wasn't as clear as I said it as what I might have heard Holy Spirit say to me. I'm not in any way claiming to be perfect in my oratory skills or my ability to communicate a thought, what I am telling you is if you will grasp the entirety of the message and not one statement here or one statement there, but grasp the fruit of the entire message, it will change your life. It will change your life. Don't hold against me one sentence found in a full page. If you're going to hold anything against me, hold this against me. That with all of my heart, with everything in me, with whatever the Father has poured into me, with every fiber, my heart, soul, and intention is to share with you what God has shared with me. And that is, we should be a people that are a sign and a wonder and a demonstration of His goodness and His blessing, not of poverty and lack and loss. We weren't born to forfeit. We were not created to be a people that are beggars. 
We were not created to be a people who had to depend on the world or the government or welfare in whatever form it might come or entitlements or whatever it might be. We were not born to be a people that needed to depend on these things to make the name of God great in all of the earth. Can somebody say amen? Amen. So we're going to conclude my part in helping, I hope, invigorate your thought process so that going forward you dive into this thing and I hope, my hope, my hope and prayer is this series is seed for you to keep pressing in to be an owner, to own. Hear me. Wow, what a powerful word. Own. To own. So let's jump into this today. And before we do that, let me pray. Father, I lift my voice. I stand today before a people that are in this room, present, physically. And I stand before a people who are watching online, wherever they might be, anywhere in the world they might be today that are watching online. I'm a man under your authority. And I pray today that you use the words that come out of my mouth to be a truth in the ears of every hearer. I pray today, the Holy Spirit, don't let me get in the way of what you want to communicate to the people. Don't let my own convictions, thoughts, or ideas, don't let me insert anywhere anything that you are not inserting into this message. But I pray today that you will help me to reflect in its entirety and in its purity and in its wholeness your word and your purpose for why you've gathered us together this morning. I pray for every man and every woman, every person listening today that their ears will be attuned to the possibilities that have been set before them, the possibilities that existed before they breathed their first breath. Holy Spirit, do in the heart of every man and every woman today what you desire of us every day, and that is that we are open to trust you. Let faith arise today in the heart of every believer, and let every enemy of the truth be scattered today. Every enemy of the truth be scattered today so that you are glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does business have to do with the church? This is episode or part four, and this is a series study of business and the church. One of the things that I've learned over 30, now four years of ministry, being here and there, being a part of a lot of different conversations, uh, what I've learned over all of this time is that in people's lives, there's in the church world, there's this complication There's this disconnect between business and the church. There's a disconnect between blessing and the church. Uh, Most of the church world, and again, uh, hear what I'm saying today in truth. Don't hear what I'm saying as judgment um, because ultimately what the Father wants to do is lead us all into a place where our eyes are wide open and our ears are wide open to receive the fullness of who He is. Is that true? But most of the church world is finds more peace and happiness in poverty than they do in blessing. Most of the church world feels more comfortable in lack than they do in abundance. And the reason that that is is because so many scriptures have been twisted and uh, manipulated 
to make Christians and believers believe that it isn't God's purpose for mankind to walk in blessing. You have to deny most of the Bible, the truth of Scripture, to ever believe that for even one second. Most believers wrap their whole concept of finance around the Scripture that talks about the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money or the difficulty for a rich man to enter into heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So they wrap their mind around this philosophy, philosophy, this idea. It's not a theology. It's an idea, it's, and it's a false idea if misinterpreted. And unfortunately, in most of the church, those ideas are misinterpreted. And if you don't, I can't dive into it deeply today, but I'll reference you back to last Sunday, the teaching last Sunday. The love of money, the reference to that is anything that you love, even if it isn't money, anything that you love more than you love the purpose of God will get in the way of your righteousness and your ability to do what God calls you to do. If you love money more than you love God's purpose, it will be evil to you. But if you love God and He blesses you like He did Solomon, like He did Matthew, the disciple, like He did Paul, if He blesses you like He did Luke, if He blesses you, you don't need to apologize for the blessing. What we've got to do is make sure that we are positioning ourselves. I'm going to love God more than everything else. And then I will manage everything else according to His will and purpose. But what most of the church misses is that very thing. They get caught up in you can't love money more than God. And if you do that, then it's wrong. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to live this life of poverty. Less is more. And then this is, what, this is the problem. Now, can I tell you, here, here's a big, there's a lot of problems with it. But I'm going to tell you one big problem. What that does is absolutely turn on its heels the scripture that says the wealth of the rich, the wicked is laid up for the righteous. It turns it on its heels, and I'll tell you why it does that. Because when we come into the kingdom of God with a concept, an idea that less is more, I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't walk in blessing because it gets in the way of my relationship with God. When we do that, what really happens is, and I've known them, you know them, you might be one, no judgment here, but I'm hoping today is deliverance day. Deliverance day. But you walk in lack for so long because in, glory, in the honor of God, in honor of God, I just, I don't want to possess anything. I don't want to own anything. I'm going to give everything away. In honor of God, I'm going to do all of that. So then what ends up happening? I've known them, you've known them, and you might be them here or online. You end up going to the government so that you can buy your milk. You end up going to the Salvation Army so that you can pay your electric bill. You end up asking, calling the local church so that you can pay your gas bill. You end up losing your house because you can't afford the mortgage. All to the glory of God. But God is blessed because I don't own anything. Man, that's a lie that the church has received, and because the church has received it, we are not the standard that we are called and created to be. Do you know that Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, a soft drink, well, it's soft. I don't know why they call it soft, it's harsh, <laughs> but Coca-Cola is more widely 
distributed. It is more widely advertised. It is more widely presented in the world than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one of the few things statistically that they can measure that more people are aware of Coca-Cola than they are the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world today. You know why? Coca-Cola makes money. You know why Coca-Cola can do that? Coca-Cola owns things. So this is a series study of business and the church. And these two things, business and the church, are not enemies of each other. They're not opposed to one another. Now in our mind they might be. I'm going to show you how they're not. But in our mind they might be. But business and the church are not opposed to one another. They're not, business is not saying of the church, stay out of me. And the church is not saying to business, stay out of me. In fact, business and the church cannot function without one another. Christ didn't do it. He was not able to keep business out of His church when He was establishing the gospel of Christ in the earth, when He was introducing grace to humanity. He didn't do it. He said, this is what I want you to do. We are the church. I am the church. I am the assembly. I'm the body of Christ. I'm raising up the body of Christ. Taxes are due. Bring taxes in and let's give them out. Let's give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Go get that fish. This is what I want you to do. I want you to call Joanna. Go back to episode 2 and you'll hear the rest of this. Go back and refer to Joanna who was one of the first to the tomb when Jesus rose from the dead. Joanna, very wealthy woman. You know what her purpose was? She financed the ministry of Christ. When he called Matthew the tax collector, when he called him to him, Matthew was very wealthy, remained very wealthy. Do you know what Matthew did? Matthew used his wealth to finance the ministry of Christ. The ministry of Christ could not have happened the way the ministry of Christ did without those businesses, without that being a part of what he did. Now someone might say, I believe it could. If it could have, why didn't it? If it were possible, we're talking about Jesus Christ. If it were possible to do what he did without including business in what he did, why didn't he do it? If that was the way for all of us, why did he choose to include that in what he did in order to expand and express his message throughout the known world at the time? Because they are not enemies of one another. So he understood the need for believers to be faithful and present in all of their affairs. This is one, and when I say affairs, please understand the right word I'm using here. He understood the need for you and me to be present in our affairs. I'm going to just throw something out here today. Again, I'm not saying anything for judgment. I'm just going to bring to all of our attention where we might find ourselves so that we can begin to correct some things. I would advise in this. I would say it this way. Don't raise your hand. Don't nod your head. Don't blink your eye. Just hear what I'm saying today. Just know if it's you, online or in this house. I don't have two pennies to rub together. I can barely pay my mortgage. I can't pay my car payment. I can't keep a job. I would say this. Of most of the people that fall under that category, you couldn't tell me the last time you balanced a checkbook. You could not tell me the last time you reconciled your accounts. In fact, most of the people that fall under that category could not tell me right now exactly how much money you have. You can tell me what you don't have, but this is what you measure it by. 
If I said, what do you have, you would say, well, what I don't have is my electric bill, what I don't have is my car payment, what I don't have is my mortgage. What you wouldn't be able to say is, what I do have is this, and what I do have is that. And you know what that is? Again, no judgment. I'm just, this is teaching moment. This is how business and the church work together so that we can become the glory of God in the earth. Do we want to be a standard or not? Yes. Well, instead, why is most of the church the stepping stool? We're the doormat. Somebody has to make a decision, Sydney, to change it. Why not us? Why not you and me? It has to start somewhere. Someone has to stand in a pulpit and begin to teach it and begin to say, this is what we can do. This is what we're capable of. Let's, let's begin to move towards that. So people sitting in this room, sitting under the sound of my voice, if you're listening to this down the road and it's recording and you're still listening to it, it still stands true. You think more about what you don't have rather than what you do have. I would say this about most of those people, if not all of those people that can say that today, is you've, you don't even remember the last time you managed anything. You don't manage your finances. You don't manage. And I can tell you management goes across the board. You're not a manager in your mind of, the, of your affairs. You don't manage your affairs. You don't manage those things that the Father has given to you. But what do you do with that? Do you sit under the sound of my voice and do you feel beaten down? And, oh, man, I didn't know I was going to come to church and this guy was just going to attack me with all these words. No, what do you do with that? You say, you know what? I'm so thankful. This guy is waking me up this morning. This guy is making me aware what I need to do if I want to overcome the situation that I'm in and the place I'm in. I need to begin to become a manager. I was created to manage. You've got to believe that today. So he understood the need for believers to be faithful and present in all of their affairs. And to be faithful and present in all of our affairs is to be a people who begin to manage those things that the Father has entrusted us with. Whatever measure that might be. I don't know what he might have given one, and we'll get to the talents in a minute. I don't know what measure he might have given to one versus another. But what I do know is the ability to manage those things is present in all of us. The willingness to manage that is what needs to be activated in so many of us. Somebody put, everybody, put your hands on yourself this morning and say, I choose to be a manager. Yes. Yes. Do it again. Say, I choose to be a manager. I'm going to own. I'm going to own. What does that mean? You're going to own a business? Let's start with owning your checkbook. Let's start with owning your bank account. Let's start with owning your car. Let's start with owning your home. I choose to manage Yahweh. I choose to manage Father God. I choose to manage by Holy Spirit so that I can move fully into the purpose that you've called me to and use the talents and the abilities you've given me to be a demonstration. So he understood the need for believers to be faithful and present in all their, their affairs by being two things. Say this with me, by being uncompromising and shrewd. Those are two great words. I love those words. Say, put your hands on yourselves again. I like putting your hands on you. <laughs> say, I'm going to be uncompromising and shrewd. Say, I'm going to learn from the best. Who is the best? Christ. He was uncompromising and he was shrewd. Let's talk about it today. Let's jump into Luke chapter 19. I'm not going to talk long today, but I'm going to talk long enough so that there's good understanding. 
Luke 19, beginning with verse 11, and we're going to read through 26. I know it's a lot, but it's important that we read it all. It says, As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And here's the problem. And I love the statement. They supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Again, this is part of the problem in the church world today is there's such a sense of I'm not going to manage anything because Jesus is coming any time now. So why would I spend the time managing this thing and then suddenly I'm going to be gone? So why manage it at all? I'm just biding my time. I'm just going to enjoy today, use what I've got, use it all up because he might come tomorrow. Well, maybe that's true. But what if not? And they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, so he said to them, because of this, he said there was a nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then he, wanted, he was going to return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus, and he said to them this, I want you to engage in business until I come. Just give you a second to think about that. So if you look up the Greek word business, what does that Greek word mean? Business. Transactions. Doesn't mean anything different to them than it does to you and me. A nobleman went into a far country, verse 12, to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten, excuse me, <clears throat> calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, Engage in business until I come. Everyone say, Jesus said. Jesus not Steve Parker. Not well, you didn't have to say that part, but uh, I, maybe you do. <laughs> but say, Jesus said, Jesus said engage, in business engage in business until I come. Now say this about, ask yourself this question out loud. Say, am I? Hmm. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying this, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. How well have you operated your business? How well have you done with your talents what I assigned you to do? The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, I'm going to give you authority over ten cities. And the second came and he said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you, therefore, are to be over five cities. Then another came and he said, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Wicked, the Greek word for wicked there, I do want to point that out. I told you this a couple weeks ago, but that Greek word for wicked is basically disobedience to the Father. Anybody who is disobedient to the Father. Depart from me, 
You wicked servant. You knew that I was a fear man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not uh, sow. Why then did you put my money, not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he already has ten. And Jesus said, But I tell you that to those who have done well, those who have functioned in their business, more will be given to them. But the one who has not managed his business, even what he has, I will take from him. I will bankrupt him. So let's go back. I want to talk about that word severe. I like using Greek and Hebrew depending on where I'm reading it from. But I want to go back to this word severe here. And let's go back to verse 21. And he says this. He says, For I was afraid of you, the man said, because you are a severe man. And let me tell you what that means. In the Greek, that is austeros, which means uncompromising. So he said, I was afraid of you because you are an uncompromising man. In other words, he said, the reason I buried this thing, the reason I didn't invest this, the reason that I didn't manage what you gave me, the reason I didn't do anything with it is because you are an uncompromising man. The reason I didn't is because you expect something. And I was afraid I wouldn't meet your expectations. But it wasn't that he was expecting him to do great and wondrous things with that. He was simply expecting him to do something with that. Are you hearing me? So he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you non-listening person. You knew that I was an uncompromising man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. So why... Did you not put my money in the bank if nothing else? Why didn't you just put it in the bank and let someone else at least manage it instead of squandering it and letting it rot and become of nothing? So take what he's got and give it to the guy who now has 10. And he said, I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He said, I'm going to bankrupt the one who refuses to manage. I'm going to tell you today it's all about management. And I'm going to say it this way. I'm going to try to look at everybody's face in this room right now. I'm going to try to make eye contact. And everybody watching online, I'm trying to make eye contact. Just know I'm, I'm looking at you. If I'm not looking at you, I'm looking at you. <laughs> and I want to tell you something today. You have something to manage. In Matthew... When it refers to this parable, I like one of the statements that it makes in Matthew, and it says he gave to each of them according to their ability. I like how that's phrased in Matthew, the same parable. He said he gave to each of them according to their ability. What does that mean? That means that each of them, all of them had the ability to manage it. They all had the ability. It wasn't that the father thought, you know, this is the smart one, this is the so-so smart one, and this is the dumb one. He didn't measure them up by their knowledge. He didn't measure them up by their education. He didn't measure them up. He measured them up by what he knew they were capable of. In this sense, he had seen their history. But what's important isn't 
that he gave one five, one two, one one. What's important is that he gave. Because in his giving, in the same way he gave to them, he's given to you and to me. And in his giving, what's important is that he gave because he believes you are capable of management. Whatever measure you've been given, he believes you are capable of managing. One managed well, in fact, I'll say this, the one with five and the one with two measured equally as well. Managed equally as well. But the one who was given one did not manage at all. And he said, even what you do have or don't have, I'm taking that away from you. What does that mean? That means this, simply put. Again, bankrupting him. It means simply this. Everything that I had accounted to you that you had not yet received, you will not receive. Okay, you need to hear this. Even what you don't have, the one who buried it, who was afraid that because his master, Christ, was uncompromising, he wasn't going to accept second best, He wasn't going to accept lack of faith. He wasn't going to accept lack of truth, lack of trust. And he says, even out of what you don't have, I'm taking that away too. In other words, I had assigned for you. Just like the guy that had five and made five more. The guy that had two made two more. I had assigned for you a blessing. I made both of them faithful over much. I had intended to make you faithful over much. But because you would not manage what I gave you, even what was coming to you, I'm putting the kibosh on. I wonder how many of us had something coming to us and we forfeited that. Is this depressing? Some are saying, no, it's great. Some are saying, man, I'm so glad I came today. (laughs) Even what you don't have, I'm going to take that away from you. I'm not going to let you access it. F. Nolan Ball, who was my spiritual father for many years, trusted him, learned more under him than I have anywhere else sat under him for seven years in Panama City, an incredible minister of the gospel. He could break, out, break down the gospel, the word, in so many ways, was a revelatory person. He heard, he obeyed, he was faithful. And he preached a message one time that was profound in his, its presentation, profound in its thought, in that he said this. He made this simple statement, and he said, if, it was, if you've lost it, or if you've given it away, or if you've forfeited it. It's not too late to get it back. There's nothing lost, stolen, or forfeited that cannot be restored to you. I'm going to say it again. There's nothing that has been lost, stolen, or forfeited that the Father cannot restore back to you. There's nothing that has been lost or stolen 
or forfeited that cannot be restored back to you. But restoration does not come to an unchanged heart. The restoration of that that has been lost or stolen or forfeited comes to a changed heart and changed mind. To one who says, I repent of my lack of management, my mismanagement. I repent. You could not trust me with five, nor two, nor one, but now you can. Try me, Father. Then shrewd. Let's talk about being shrewd. There's a Scottish preacher named Alexander McLaren that was born in 1829, died in 1910, but he was a Scottish preacher and he preached all over England, all over Europe back in the day, and he was well known for his oratory skills. And there was a statement that he made that I'm going to quote this morning that I think is profound and very helpful for where we are this morning. And he said this, he said, Go to the men of the world, thou Christian, and do not let it be said that the devil's scholars are more studious and earnest than Christ's disciples. Is that not profound? Let me read it again. It's so profound, it's worthy of twice said. Go to the men of the world, thou Christian, and do not let it be said that the devil's scholars are more studious and earnest than Christ's disciples. This man, even in the 1800s, recognized and realized, even then in the church world, there was a forfeiting of the purpose of God. There was a forfeiting of the blessing of God. There was a forfeiting of what God wanted us to do in the earth. I'm telling you today, we should not be the people coming up underneath of our government, coming up underneath and depending upon our government. We should be a people that are establishing the standards. We should be a people. We should be a people. I believe this. Mm. Strong statement, true statement. I believe there should not be a single believer on welfare. I believe not one single believer should be in a position where they have to depend on the government, unemployment or anything else. In fact, I believe it should be so profoundly clear that the government of, governments of the world realize and recognize why is it That anyone who calls Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior, somehow we are not supporting. But let me give you a crazy statistic. There are more believers statistically on welfare and government support than there are non-believers. That's embarrassing. Poor us. We're just lowly Christians. We're afraid to own. We just have nothing for Jesus. Our lack is our sacrifice. In the world, isn't it interesting? Do we think, let me say it this way, do we think for a second that any power... Any authority 
whether in the United States or around the world, is ever going to look at the church and believe for a second or get past the point where we're the laughing stock. And we're called every name in the book, religious right, we're called the relig- whatever, we're called holy rollers, we're called w- w- whatever it is. They've got a thousand names for us. We're called all those things. Why are we called all those things? Because we're not taken seriously. You know why we're not taken seriously? Because we mismanage everything that God entrusts us with. We mismanage it. We don't take it seriously. Father, I came to you. I've received you. I believe you. You've entrusted me with whatever ability and talent that you've given me, and I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to believe for something beyond me. And I'm going to make this strong statement. If you're a believer and you're on welfare and you're accepting government support, whatever level it is, and you're happy with that, please repent because you embarrass me. As a child of God, you embarrass me. If you're okay with that, if you look forward to that check coming in the mail, if you look forward to those food stamps, if you look forward to that assistance, oh, it's, what day is it? I got two more days and mm, they're going to send me this. And you look forward to it. You've not met the Christ I know. You don't know the God I know. Because the God I know would not give you pleasure in waiting on that check. He would be showing you how to get past needing that check. No judgment. Truth. Because we were not called to be the ones that the government feels like they have to support. If it wasn't for these Christians, we'd have a lot more money in the kitty. But these stinking believers won't work. I'm, I'm, I'm getting shrewd here. This is shrewd. These Christians, good gracious, they all... Vote alike, but man, they don't have faith alike. They don't trust alike. They're so divided among themselves, they're happy with nothing. And yet they tell the world that they serve a God who has everything. If the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, man, I don't want to serve a God that doesn't share. Is anybody hearing me today? Holy Ghost, wake us up. Holy Spirit, wake us up. If you need assistance, you're in a place where that's where you are in your life. Right now, you have one talent. Let me equate that one talent and burying it with the assistance that you're receiving. If you are happy receiving that assistance and you are content with it and you live with an expectation of it, then you have taken that one talent, that possibility to do more and you've buried it in the ground. But if he's given you a talent, and he has, and right now you're in need of that assistance, 
but you loathe it. And you recognize that assistance, and I'm going to tell you today, government assistance is never the blessing of God. Anybody who believes I'm getting assistance from the government, it's the blessing of God. Stop lying about my God. It's the curse of the church. So if you've, if you've got that talent and you're receiving assistance today, don't bury that talent in this metaphorical or hypothetical or whatever ethical way by saying, I'm happy to receive it. Come to the place where you're saying, I can't wait to not receive it again. Quickly, I'll tell this. When my, our first, mine and wife, my wife's first daughter was born, we had nothing. We could not afford her. We were struggling. We were eating rice and spaghetti every night. We received a letter. We went to the doctor. The doctor notified we couldn't pay the bill. He notified the county where we were at, Bay County, Florida. These people can't pay the bill. They sent us all the paperwork and said, if you'll just sign these papers, we'll take care of the entire cost of her birth. They're sitting up back then. They mailed everything. And they're sitting there on our table and my wife and I are looking at these things eating our spaghetti we're looking at these papers there all we got to do is sign them and we don't have to worry about paying anything else to bring our daughter Kaylee into the world and for a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second I thought maybe that's the way but then Holy Spirit woke me up said if you give them that part of you now you'll be giving them every part of you later and I took those papers and I tore them. I had no idea how we were going to pay for Kaylee. Yeah, right. We ended up having to pay on her for, we didn't own her for, the hospital owned her for a long time. <laughs> well, we sold the car. We did everything that we needed to do to be able to slowly but surely pay our debt. She was a debt. <laughs> Today she's a blessing. But I would not sign those papers because I knew if I give them this little piece of us, we'll be giving them bigger pieces of us as time goes on because it's too easy. It doesn't cost me anything. And until I have to get hungry for supper, I won't go get a job to buy chicken instead of spaghetti. Does anybody hear me today? So let's jump into shrewd. So he said, go to the men of the world. I love what he said here. I just read it a moment ago. Thou Christian, do not let it be said that the devil's scholars are more studious and earnest than Christ. Oh, man, you believers, he said. Believers, believers, rise up. Know who you are. Know who you are today. You are not meant to be the bottom of the barrel. You're not the crud that gathers at the bottom. You're not that. You know, I, I fry a turkey every Thanksgiving. I love fried turkey. And I fry a turkey every Thanksgiving. I put it in that little gray pot. It's five, well, I don't know how many gallons it is, but I put it in that little gray pot full of peanut oil, boil that thing up, cook that thing for however many, three minutes per pound, pull that turkey out. When I first put that turkey into that oil, man, that oil's clear. It's, it's clean. It's beautiful. Put that nasty turkey in there, the raw turkey. Put that thing in there. It's... Nick cooks and pops and does everything. Now take that turkey out. We go in there. We eat it. 
Set that oil off to the side so it can cool, so I can clean that pot out, go dig a hole. I don't know if I'm supposed to, I don't think I'm supposed to do this. But. <laughs> it's too late. It returned to the earth from which it came. <laughs> Dig a hole, and I take that oil, that used oil, and I dump it into that hole, and then I cover that hole, and I let it seep into the ground. <laughs> I'm probably going to get a ticket in the mail. <laughs> Gaston, what's your address? Tell them you're at. <laughs> but when that bucket is empty, what was once clean, had nothing in it, was beautiful, it was shiny. When it's empty at the bottom of that, for about a half inch of the bottom of that thing is just crud. And I take a spoon and I scoop it and I eat it a button. No, I'm just kidding. I had your attention. I thought I'd throw that in. But I do take a metal spoon and I scrape and I get all that crud that's in the bottom of that thing. And you know what that is? That represents too much of the church today. We're the crud. Everything is being cooked up and served all around the communities around us, the cities around us, the states around us, the nation around us, the world around us. It's being served up to everybody else. And then when it's all thrown away, what do we have left? Most of the church world, we represent the stuff that's at the very bottom. Disrespected, unrecognized, unwanted, cast aside, no confidence in us. Who can change that? Who can change that? You and I, we can change that. We can change that. Instead of being the crud at the bottom, we're the turkey coming up. We are the brisket on the smoker. Let's read Luke chapter 16. So Jesus said to the disciples, he said, there was a rich man who had a manager. Everybody say he had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called to him and he said to him, he said, what is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. He said, dude, you're not managing well. You're fired. Even what you don't have, I'm taking away from you. And the manager said to himself, and here's, here's, here's where repentance can come in. Now I know this is a story about just, it's the principle we're getting at right here. And the manager said to himself, what am I going to do? My master is taking the management away from me. I haven't managed well. So everything that I've been responsible for is being taken away. What am I going to do? And the manager said to himself, I don't know what, because I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. What am I going to do? I don't have any other talent. All I can do is manage. And you, <laughs> you can't even do that. He said, so I've decided what I'm going to do. I'm going to wake up. Everybody say, he woke up. He, woke up. he said, I've decided what I'm going to do. I just had a moment. I'm going to wake up. So that when I'm removed from management, people will receive me in to their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, his moment of epiphany. 
Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe the master? And he said, I owe him a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, this is what I want you to do. You're having a hard time paying that bill, but I'm going to work with you. I want you to take your bill, I want you to quickly sit down, and I want you to write 50. Then he said to another, he said, how much do you owe? And he said, I owe a hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill, and I want you to write 80. And the master then commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then Jesus said, for the sons of this world, and this is not a compliment, by the way, what Jesus says here. He says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their generation than the sons of light are. You need to understand that statement there. Why is it? That people in the world are in the positions they're in because they're more shrewd and they manage what believers won't. People of the world are shrewd and they will manage what has been given to them where sons of God don't. And I tell you this. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Don't be afraid because you're saying, I can't have business. I can't be an owner because unrighteous wealth is in there. So that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal, into eternal dwellings. He said, I'll take care of the rest. Don't you be afraid of how I send it to you. If it isn't of me, I'll take care of that. You bring it in and I'll filter it. Are you hearing me today? So that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal Dwellings. Verse 8, why did Christ say the sons of the world are more wise and studious than the sons of light? Because the church forfeits any opportunity to prosper and be a demonstration of blessing. When I say the church, I'm not talking about the body. I'm talking about the individual. We are all churches. The assembly is the gathering. But we are all temples of the Holy Spirit. We understand that, right? And then verse 9, he says, be shrewd and use what you have available right now to plan ahead for the days approaching. Whatever you have, Scott. Whatever you have. Shrewd. Is not deceitful. Shrewd. Is tactical. Shrewd is not deceptive. Shrewd is cunning. It is wise. It is trusting. It is exacting. It is saying, this is what he's given me. And I'm not going to sit back with this thing under my pillow... And do nothing with it. And again I say, to every person in this room, every single one of you represents something. You represent a talent or talents. Whatever the extent of your ability at this time, don't take what the Father has given you and stick it in a hole in the ground. And even if you don't dig a hole and bury it, 
Even if you hold it in your hand and do nothing with it, the mismanagement of it will cost you even what you don't have. I've taught, man, over the years, and I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to give you opportunity for statements, questions. But, man, I've taught over the years finance throughout the years at The Rock. I've taught a class numerous times. I'm going to teach it again sometime in the fall. But I teach about finance. And one of the things that I believe with all of my heart is, and I realize we're in a different age and a generation, but I'm about sick and tired of that excuse. That's like saying, well, the reason people don't come to Christ today is because it's a different generation. We don't need Him anymore. Generations don't change truths. Truths are timeless. Principles transcend dates and years, generations. And one of the things that I teach in that class is, listen, when you are gathering together and you're putting everything together, if you don't know what you have, you'll have nothing. Exactly what he teaches here, what I read in Luke a moment ago. If you don't know what, you'll ha- what you have, you will have nothing. You'll have less than what you think you have. And it's probably even true under the sound of my voice right now. And what am I calling you to today? I'm simply calling us as a body of believers to wake up and to stop accepting what has been given to us because people feel sorry for us. Until we feel more sorry for them than they do for us, we will not bring the gospel to them on every level that we've been given to present it with. They pity the church because we're weak, because we have lack, because we have nothing, because we own the worst, we mismanage the most. What happens? What happens? What happens when we wake up and we begin by saying, Father, forgive me. Forgive me. For my lack of management. Forgive me that I'm so quick to bury and hide what you've given me instead of investing it and producing more. Forgive me for not having the faith to love you in abundance even more than I love you in lack. This whole brainwashed idea that because the Father blesses us, we might be guilty of not loving Him enough. You can't tell a whole church. You can't tell the whole body of Christ. You can't tell every assembly around the world today that because a few make bad choices, that the whole body of Christ needs to stop believing. Because a few have allowed their abundance, their love for things, their love for blessing, their love for abundance to get in the way of their love for Christ. To assume that that is true of every believer is to stop trusting God. But to be in that place 
In fact, I'll make it real clear. No, I'm not going to use that same example. We have opportunity, you and me today. Would you look at me this morning? Whatever condition you think your life is in right now, and even you young people, younger people, coming up people, getting your first jobs. I got my first job when I was 12 years old working at A&W Restaurant. I worked hard. I was determined. I am not going to be the guy that ever has to go through life saying, every time I want to do something, I can't afford it. That was my mentality. I didn't know how to equate blessing with God. I didn't know how to do any of that at that time. It didn't matter to me at that time. What mattered to me was I was not going to be the guy that grew up saying, married saying, had kids and saying, I can't afford it, even when I couldn't afford it. I wasn't going to be the guy saying, we can't afford to do anything. I would rather say, not today, maybe tomorrow, than to say, than to put a permanence on it and say, we can't afford it. Do you hear me? And I saved my first $100 when I was 12 years old working at A&W Restaurant, sweeping that parking lot every day for 30 minutes. The school bus would drop me off. I'd get off. I'd go grab that push broom. and I'd We didn't have blowers back then. And I'd go walk and I'd sweep that parking lot with a push broom. Sweep it into that dustpan and it was done. Pick up all the trash people throw out of their cars because they don't have ownership. They don't understand ownership. Pick all that up, throw it away, and then get my $13.10 at the end of the week. When I saved up my first $100, opened up that bank account at Dort Federal Credit Union, opened up my first bank account, I felt like a rich man, 12 years old. When I turned 18, started putting $25 a month into investments because I was determined I'm not going to grow up and I'm not going to be that guy and I'm never going to depend on the government. As I begin to see and I look around my family, I have family today. If it wasn't for the government... They'd be buried. I'm not going to be that guy. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's not going to look like that. And I worked hard. When I'd get laid off, I never, ever filed for unemployment. Never. Never filed for unemployment. I could have. When I worked in the construction field in Houston, Texas, in Beaumont, outside in Pasadena, what we used to call Stinkadena, where all the chemical plants are, over there by Mick, Mickey Gillies Club. And we'd, I worked over there in those chemical plants. And we called it Stinkadena. And you'd work a job under contract for six months, a year, whatever it was. As soon as that job would run out, the job is out. I never filed for unemployment. Most of those guys go straight to the unemployment office and file for unemployment, use it as long as they could, and then at the end of it, then they would go get a job. Never did it. Because my mentality was, I'm not going to depend on the government to provide for me. And even then, I wasn't serving God, but I was determined I'm not going to serve the government either. I'm not going to be their slave. And I'm telling you, there's a big thing about slavery and all of that. People, it, whether you're white, black, Hispanic, or whatever else, and people can yell all they want to, I don't, I'm not going to be a part of slavery, and yet we choose to every day. I refuse to be identified with slavery, and yet every single day, 
Where's that check? My master's going to provide for me. Is anybody hearing me? And I worked, and I went and got a job, and I'm just telling you today, you know what I did? I managed. Did I make every decision right? You better believe I did not. Were there times I couldn't afford, there were times I couldn't afford gas, and I'd have to call my friend, can I ride with you? But it was a short stint. It was never something I grew comfortable with. I'm telling you today, it's about management. It's about here, the Father says, I'm going to give you a talent. What are you going to do with it? Well, Father, you know what? You can entrust me with two. And then when I do so much with two, then you can entrust me with five. And then when I do something with those five, you can entrust me with that ten that you just increased and multiplied. Because you're never going to find me burying those talents under the ground. You're never going to find me letting somebody else get the reward for the work I'm doing. I'm going to manage. Put your hands on yourself this morning and say, I choose to manage. Only you this morning know what you're not managing. Only you know. My words today, my words today are not in any way to bring condemnation on anybody, no heaviness, none of that, no judgment. That's not my intention. If you feel judged this morning, that's the work of the Holy Ghost. That's not me. If you feel the need to repent this morning, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not me. I'm delivering a message and I'm delivering a word. I am today an oracle. That's what I am. And it's up to the Father and you to do the rest. I encourage you today. Don't ever again think about yourself, well, I'm a believer, so, you know, I can only be, there's only so much I can expect. I'm going to tell you, this is what you can expect as a believer, abundance and blessing. What does that look like? It looks like not lack. Well, that person's more abundant than I am abundant. It's not about how much. It's about no lack. No lack. 